Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Happy New Year, Chris. Yes. Thankfully, uh, 2020 is done, and now we're on to the disaster that's going to be 21. A disaster? You think it's going to get worse? Well, you know, Mad Max takes place in 2021, John, and uh, we we all know how that <laughs> turned out. So I'm uh, I'm not holding my breath that 21 is going to be a, a huge improvement over 2020. Well, it's certainly not off to a fantastic start. We are in a full lockdown again. Yeah, I'm not there recording in person with you, as we have for most of 2020. Well, as has become somewhat customary around this time of year, uh, here in Off Hours, we take a look back on the year that was, and then the year that is to come, and, and set out a theme, guiding light uh, for each of us that will encapsulate what it is we, we intend to do in the year ahead. Yeah, last year we, we uh, when we talked about it, neither of us expected that uh, we were going to be spending a huge part of it dealing with a uh, global pandemic, obviously. Uh, no, obviously nobody nobody really thought that's what was going to happen with their year. But uh, so that that kind of took over a lot of uh, a lot of my my year and survival ended up becoming the the yearly theme for for 2020 as opposed to building, which is what it was originally going to be. And if I recall correctly, last year we were kind of joking about the fact that the the show title for the previous year in 2019 somewhat prophetic for you in yes. that your chaos was was self-imposed and now the, the year 2019 had become somewhat chaotic and i'm actually thankful that your that the title of of last year's episode which is also uh, an utterance you you had had throughout that episode uh, did not wholly come to pass in 2020 uh, last year's episode was it was utterly terrifying so <laughs> it, it was not the best year but I, i'm grateful that i can say that 2020 was not utterly terrifying uh it was certainly inconvenient in a whole lot of ways but in looking back on uh, some photos from the year uh, there are actually a lot of moments of, of joy and uh, fun mixed in there despite the fact that the year in no way went the way that any of us anticipated would. The big thing for me was the change in my travel schedule. And the fact that I wasn't able to travel at all last year was uh, was shocking. I think uh, Rich and I ended up spending two days in Atlanta, and that was the only traveling that I did last year. Whereas normally I'm out of the, the country for months uh, through the year. So that was certainly a, a bit of a shock for me not uh, not being on a plane other than to go down to Atlanta. So hopefully this year that will change, although probably not for the first nine months or so. I, I don't see the uh, the vaccine rollout happening fast enough worldwide to enable me to, to really travel safely. So we'll see what happens. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that by the fall I'll be able to uh, maybe head over to the UK and, and uh, see some friends over there as well as Meet up with some uh, some people and and hopefully maybe go to a watch event or two. Now the reason you were in Atlanta was for Workbench Con, which actually played into your original theme for 2020 somewhat. And as much as the year did turn into the year of survival, more so than the year of building, 
you did actually accomplish a noteworthy amount of building over the course of the year. And when we had spoken last year, one of the things you wanted to build up was your YouTube channel and Mm -hmm. Rich's YouTube channel for low end design. And that was part of the reason you guys went to WorkbenchCon, was to learn a, a bit more about doing that. And while it's kind of unfathomable thinking about attending a conference at this point yeah, in the pandemic, uh, it was nice that you actually got to go out and do that. And you guys have actually published a decent number of videos to the channel over the, this past year. Yeah, Rich's channel has certainly done well from that. And, uh, and you know, kudos to him for getting that onto a more consistent schedule and actually getting videos out. Uh, certainly, if you want to see what's going on in the studio at whole, as a whole here, uh, Rich's low and design channel is excellent and, and gives you a good sense of where we've come. And certainly, if you go back and look at some of the first videos that we published from this space, you know, there's there are actual walkthroughs of this space when we had just moved in. In fact, I think one of the videos includes a bunch of walkthrough from November 15, 2019, when we literally just got the keys and we were walking around the space and talking about what we wanted to do with it. And, you know, I think I don't think we've had a, a complete walkthrough recently. Uh, so maybe something that we need to do uh, sometime soon is, uh, is do an actual walkthrough of what the space is like uh, a little more than a year later and uh, sort of show off what's going on. But it really is amazing, the transformation and what we've managed to build here. You know, that's something obviously we talked on a uh, on our recent episode the uh, about how much of a, an important tool this shop actually is for me in being able to build things. And it really is amazing when you when you consider what we've managed to build here in a year. Mm-hmm. It truly is remarkable. It's easy to forget just how much different that space was a year ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, this time last year, we weren't recording in person. And sadly, that's the same today. But <laughs> there was no podcast recording studio set up there. In fact, this no. time last year, that space was just a, a barren, barn-like environment. Yeah, there were quite a few things we hadn't had done yet. We we hadn't um, set up all the lighting yet in the main shop. I, in fact, at this time last year, I didn't even have any of my my machines here. It wasn't until the end of January that we moved machines into the shop space. So uh, really, even though I was, you know, I was here every day or nearly every day, um, it was very much, uh, you know, a space waiting to to be something. And, uh, you know, it's so it it really isn't even just a year that we've we've had everything set up and, and going. I mean, it's, you know, I would say realistically, it's probably been about six or seven months since we've sort of had enough things set up here that we could comfortably walk in and actually do a project that wasn't the shop itself. And as we touched on last episode as well, you've done quite a bit to build out the foundation and the the tooling and the equipment that you need to be able to build the YouTube channels in the way that, that you have been and the way that you will be going forward. The you know the the tooling that I've built out now in especially my watchmaking studio has really started to help me out. I I've been shooting video now for a little over a month, uh, specifically about our project Minotaur 
work and that's starting to come to fruition. So I, in fact, I, I have a video that's nearly finished now. Uh, you saw the, the rough cut of it um, just before we started recording. And that should actually be live before this recording of the podcast goes up. So it's it's nice to have that equipment set up and ready to go. And I've already filmed, you know, 90% of what I need for the next two videos as well. And it's not particularly onerous for me to sit down and record a little bit of it. So I'm hoping that that's going to make things a bit easier. It still doesn't help with the editing process. That still is the most time consuming. And fortunately, that gets easier as I've you know, I finished building assets and things like that for the, uh, for the videos. So, you know, I, I spent three hours the other day struggling with Illustrator, rebuilding a couple of, uh, social media icons, which sit on screen for a grand total of about 20 seconds. And that's, you know, that's frustrating and it, it delays getting out the first video, but now that that's done, I don't have to do it again. They're ready to go as assets and I don't have to worry about rebuild, you know, spending hours and hours rebuilding those. So, uh, that that sort of thing will make the editing faster. But at the end of the day, video editing is always slow. But the the ability to record the footage initially, that's that's become much easier, which will make it easier for me to, to just quickly record some B-roll for, for a video or even just sit down and talk about what it is that I'm working on. And uh, hopefully hopefully that will allow me to, to put things out more regularly. I'd like to get to a point where I'm releasing a video every week uh, with the stuff that I'm doing as well as the project, you know, that we're working on, although that'll be a little bit delayed just because this month it doesn't look like we're going to be able to get together at all to work on Project Minotaur at all, thanks to this lockdown. But uh, at the very least, I'm, I want to be able to post about some of the other things that I'm doing. And it'll be nice to have uh, have that stuff set up and ready to go and, and make it faster for me to work. And while you're not wholly satisfied with the way 2020 panned out, I'm also happy to see the way that the studio, as a tool for you, has been able to help bolster your workflows and, mm -hmm. and make things easier and enable things for you that simply weren't feasible at all in your previous setup. And, and you know, one of the things that we've, we've been able to do here is start work on Project Minotaur, right, which is something that uh, prior to that... Uh, I, I think a year ago we would have, or 18 months ago, it's not something that we would have considered uh, realistically just because we didn't really have a good space to do it in and we didn't have a good setup to work in. And that's something that we now have a space. Now it's convenient because I'm here every day and it's not far from where you live, so it's easy for you to get over here. And that that certainly helps, but it's it's the kind of thing that I don't think realistically we would have started work on this project 18 months ago with the, the setups that we had, the two work environments that we had. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely valid. Uh, I can be honest and say that I, I did not forecast that uh, this was a, a project we would wind up working on together in 2020. And uh, it's been really neat. Uh, I've enjoyed working on this with you and I'm anxious to see how it all plays out and uh, the way that it takes shape. It'll be interesting to see where it ends up. Uh, obviously, it's, you know, we know where it is right now, and it's definitely in its very early stages, both in terms of actually physically making the thing, but also in terms of the original design of it. Uh, it, it isn't a massive shift from the original 6497 that we we're working on, but I'm really looking forward to seeing where we end up with this in version 3, 
you know, the, this is an interesting thing that we're doing and I'm, and I'm really glad that it, it's working towards building the skills that we need for the, the later versions of it. But like so many things that I work on, you know, version one is kind of cool and it's nice to be doing it, but it's really version three that I'm interested in. And, and this space will allow us to, uh, hopefully COVID will allow us to, to actually get together more frequently after, uh, after this lockdown's over. And I think that once we get rolling on this, we can get through a couple of iterations of this much faster than maybe we would have expected just because of the space that we have and how easy it is for us to just sit down and work on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things that has frustrated me most about COVID is just knowing how much it has retarded the progress on this particular project. Mm -hmm. I, I know for a fact we would be so much further along with it, if not for COVID-19. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's, and that's the biggest frustration that with COVID. I, I mean, honestly, COVID hasn't really affected me a whole lot. Um, you know, it hasn't affected my family a whole lot in terms of what we do. And, you know, again, the travel has been the biggest thing. And, you know, there've been some delays in getting, getting pools and, and things like that delivered to the shop and materials and stuff to the shop. And that's, you know, that's not ideal. But at the end of the day, I, you know, I've been a, mostly a, a hermit working on things for years anyways. And, uh, you know, we've, we've missed out on having a couple of parties. You know, we, we tend to do, uh, Tamara and I tend to do a, a strays and orphans party on Christmas Eve where it's nice to sort of get friends together and, you know, and, and hang out and, and be able to chat. And it's, uh, you know, that's always been a good, a good time for us. And, you know, we, we usually have a few big parties in the summer where again, we can, you know, have a big barbecue and, and have a bunch of people over and, and we certainly miss that. But for, for so much of what we do, we, we're not, you know, it hasn't really affected us a whole lot. So it's, it's kind of tough to complain about too much about COVID. Uh, but at the same time, I also know, as you say, that it's dramatically slowed down our progress on this and it'll be nice to be able to get back to that regularly and be able to work, you know, one or two nights a week on a consistent basis. Mm-hmm. Now, you alluded to this somewhat earlier, but just so we have it on, on the record, and matter-of-factly, what is your theme going forward for 2021? <laughs> and are you officially changing what your theme was for 2020? Well, I, I think that, I think that my, my theme for 2020, well, I did a reasonable job at, at my building theme, and, uh, you know, and I, I did okay from that. I think survival is definitely what my 2020 ended up becoming. And uh, I think building is going to continue to be what I'm doing in 2021. Uh, I didn't get much of the YouTube channel stuff going on my own side. And that's something that I, I regret not having done. But and frankly, I regret not having started my YouTube channel seriously 10 years ago. So uh, when I had originally wanted to, to do it. But definitely building that, building the watches. You know, again, building is, is an entirely appropriate theme for what it is that I'm trying to do. And... Uh, you know, hopefully refinement is what I'll be doing in, in 22, but in 21, I think building those foundations is still really what I'm, uh, what I'm trying to get to. Mm -hmm. I have to admit, I have a modicum of regret for not choosing to use YouTube over a decade ago. So I, there's a, a project that I had started with some of my fellow classmates in watchmaking school, so Alliance Solagère, and we weren't a fan of the big red play symbol that mm -hmm. YouTube was overlaying on videos yeah. at the time, which they, 
they don't do anymore, which I think is a good move. But we chose a, a different video platform for publishing a, a whole slew of videos we had made about watchmaking. And we had a backup of these on a hard disk, uh, which was in the, the safekeeping uh, of one of my fellow classmates who had done most of the editing. And we also had a copy up on the web. But that drive did take a tumble mm-hmm. off of a table. And that service did happen to go under or pivot or what have you before I was cognizant of the fact that this drive was no longer valid. So uh, we lost a whole bunch of of content in this in this sort of vein. And some of the videos have survived on YouTube, but it's because people have ripped them the other service <laughs> right. and, and put them up. And yeah. some of those videos have you know hundreds of thousands of views, but it's not on my channel. It's it's on someone else's channel. It's tough to it's tough to work on that stuff and it's and yeah it's it's tough to pick a platform that's going to survive um backups uh, you know in my professional life as a as an IT guy I can tell you some incredible horror stories of backup problems and failures and things like that but I'm not going to bore anybody with those you know it's interesting with YouTube and it's the way it survived and hopefully will continue to survive uh this is something Rich and I were discussing the other day I've I've wanted to include a way with my watches to document what it is that I've done to the watch. Everything from the movement that's in there to the customizations, to the materials, to, you know, anything that that would be useful for a future watchmaker to know about the watch. And as we know from watching the collector's market, there's no guarantee that, you know, paperwork, for instance, or a booklet or anything like that is going to survive with the watch, uh, even within the ownership of a single person, let alone as it moves on to future owners. So uh, having a paper copy of something that was included with the watch, I think there's a low chance that it actually gets passed on to uh, to a future owner or, uh, you know, the watchmaker who's actually doing the servicing on the watch. And, you know, I've thought about, okay, well, what about publishing a website with some of this information? But the problem there is that, you know, once I'm gone, that website, who's paying for the hosting, who's paying for the domain registration, and there's no guarantees that it's going to survive. And so one of the things I'm actually considering is filming a video about the watch and putting it as an unlisted video on my YouTube channel and then putting a URL to that um, to that video and, you know, laser engrave it on, let's say, the back of the dial or something like that. And that way, somebody in the future can open up the watch, take it apart and say, hey, what is this URL, you know, or QR code or whatever that takes you to a URL and... You can then go and look at this video and see, oh, this is what the materials are that I used in this watch. These are the things that I recommend doing or not doing. Or if you need to repair it, this is what it is. Uh, Or even actual part numbers. So, you know, if it's a particular variant of a movement or things like that. 
And I'm considering using YouTube for that just because I think at this point the chances of YouTube surviving past my lifetime is probably pretty high. And then having a paper backup document of all of this information and then gift that to Archives Canada has systems where you can you can give them a bunch of papers and they'll actually archive those papers for you. Or maybe, you know, somebody like the Worshipful Company of Clockmakers or somebody like that. You know, the BHI, you know, somebody, some kind of an institution that will actually maintain those documents. So there is a, a paper backup of it as well. But YouTube is, has managed to survive and, and grow to a scale that's, it's possible that it may actually just continue to survive like this. And, and those videos may just be able to survive in perpetuity. So we'll we'll have to see sort of where things go, but I'm sort of leaning towards that right now. Now, why unlisted? Why, why not have it as a listed video? I don't think there's enough value in the rest of the world necessarily seeing what's there. I'm going to talk about the techniques and whatnot that I'm I'm going to use to make these watches in better videos where it will actually be outlined. I think that those videos are going to be intended specifically for a watchmaker who is going to be servicing and or repairing and restoring that watch. And I think that that will probably be, I think if the video is going to be useful to that person, it needs to be technical and succinct in a way that it will not be very entertaining or valuable to somebody who is not sitting there with the watch in front of them and actually working on it. You know, one of the, one of the big complaints these days, whenever you try and search for how to do something, you know, I just want to learn how to, you know, do something quickly in Illustrator. Well, you do a, a Google search for how do I do this in Illustrator? And every result that you get is a 45-minute video on how to do it in Illustrator. Say, so, well, I don't really want to watch a 45-minute video on YouTube on how to do something in Illustrator. I just want the, you know, a written thing quickly to be able to to sort of, you know, to show me how to do it. And that's the kind of thing in this case where... I want to be able to just put up a very quick video. I don't want to have to explain, you know, what the what the different lubricants are that I've used when I'm servicing this watch. I just want to be able to to list them out quickly and say, these are the lubricants that I use for this watch. And these are the materials that I use for this watch. I don't want to have to explain to somebody, this is what Argentium is. Um, you know, I, I expect the person who's watching that video will be able to then go and find the information they need based on that. But now they know, okay, that's a that's what this this metal is. It's not sterling silver, it's actually argentium. And I, I don't know that there's enough value to the average YouTube watcher to um, you know to, to actually see that information. I would encourage you to consider perhaps setting up a separate channel for these videos and just trusting the YouTube algorithm not to surface them because there is so much <laughs> content there. You have more, far more trust in the YouTube algorithm than I do. I guarantee you right now that if those, if they're not unlisted videos, they will get published and they'll, they will get po pushed out into the world. And, and I don't really have a lot of interest in that. Um, you know, again, I think that there's, there the kinds of videos that, uh, again, I don't, I don't see there being a lot of value in them being a, a publicly available thing because the information that, is going to be important publicly is already going to be released in a better venue 
um, you know, in in the actual channel itself. So uh, these are these are a different thing than than um, you know, sort of the average video that I'm going to be putting up there. And I, and I don't really see there being a huge benefit to uh, to having them out there publicly. Now, would you consider something like archive.org's video archive to be out there publicly? Would you consider publishing it there as well as a, a backup if perchance YouTube were to go under? Yeah, that's a possibility. And I'll, you know, I'll look into that. Um, I think that there are, again, I think that there are better ways of doing that. I, I don't actually trust archive.org to survive. I, I don't think that that's a, a particularly, I don't think it's a particularly stable service. Uh, and I certainly would not rely on it. I know far too many people who trusted archive.org to storing things over the years, and it has gone missing. Uh, if I was going to do that, I would, again, press somebody like Archives Canada, and I would give mm-hmm. video copies of it to Archives Canada. I wouldn't actually trust it on, you know, as a as a backup, like as a secondary backup to, you know, let's say a YouTube channel, let's say. Uh, I would I would rather give it to an organization like that who has an actual mandate and money from, a, you know, from the government of Canada in this case, to maintain an archive, and they have actual people whose livelihoods it is to maintain all of this this material. Um, they they have a very very impressive system here, and again anybody can can pass on, you know, family documents, let's say, you know, videos, whatever, and they will maintain it. And most importantly, not only will they maintain the video, they'll actually maintain it in a format that is readable going forward. And that that's also extremely important. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, things like Library of Congress, Library of Congress is also, a, you know, a similar organization. Uh, the British, uh, British Library is a similar organization. Uh, there, there are... There are organizations out there that do this professionally, do this, you know, this is what their mandate is. And, and they're the people that I would trust with a backup of it. I, I wouldn't trust anything online as an actual backup to that source. I, the reason that I am suggesting using something like YouTube is because it's an easy way for being able to distribute that, that information to somebody in the future, potentially. Um, you know, going to something like Archives Canada that it's certainly possible anybody can go in there and request documents, but it is going to be more onerous for somebody in the future. And I would rather the first order retrieval be as easy as possible if, if you know, again, if YouTube survives. Mm-hmm. Yes, I absolutely agree. You, you should submit this to Archives Canada as well. Uh, I've made use of their services a number of times, and in fact, that's one of the few places to find a lot of information pertaining to our culture and heritage here in Canada, including things like the Canadian Horological Institute Mm -hmm. that we've spoken about before. And in addition to that, submitting similar documents and videos to organizations like BHI, uh, I think is also a a wise call. Mm -hmm. And uh, the NAWCC would be another one I would encourage you to submit it to. They actually have an online uh, video archive available mm-hmm. to the members. But in addition to that, they have a, a library and archives of their own that right. they maintain and take care of. And I can't say with certainty that they'll be around a century from now. But they do have a membership that values taking care 
of this information and this sort of heritage and right. a membership that values being able to dig back into that history and surface things for future generations to learn from and, and benefit from. Mm -hmm. Well, and in, you know, in my, again, in my professional career as an IT person, one of the things you quickly learn about is that um, in terms of backups, the best solution for backups is a three to one solution. So you need to have at least three different copies of the material. It needs to be on at least two different types of media. And one of them needs to be, at least one of them needs to be in a separate physical location from the others. And that's the way that I would approach this as well. So again, whether YouTube is the, you know, sort of the easy way of getting it, you know, out into the world and, and easily accessible in the future, I would make sure that there were multiple copies of this information in other, the hands of other organizations so that um, there, the chances of it going away would be low. I think about some of the documents that I've read over the years, learning skills like Niello making and you know, like there's three primary documents that I used for that. There was uh, Pliny the Elder's, I can't remember the name of the document that it's actually in, but he was he was sort of trying to collect, uh, uh, you know, all knowledge that was available at the time into this single document. And so he has write-ups in there about Niello. Um, Theophilus Presbyter, he has documented Niello making as it stood in the 12th century in On Diverse Arts. And then... You have Benvenuto Cellini in the 15th century who's publishing his treatise on goldsmithing and sculpture. And I think about those three documents and what are the chances that they actually had survived? You know, the fact that those three documents managed to survive over, you know, in the case of Pliny the Elder, is literally thousands of years. Um, even in the case of the two medieval goldsmiths, you're still talking 500 plus years at this point. And if any one of those three documents had not survived in some way, then we would have been at a massive loss in terms of that knowledge. And who knows how many other documents were actually written with knowledge, either like this or, or, you know, for a different, you know, different arts, how many of those, those documents were written and then have been lost. So I, I'm very conscious of the idea of taking what I know and trying to document it in in a way that can be kept in multiple locations, multiple formats, so that it does survive. Again, nothing you know, nothing that I'm I'm doing is going to be so groundbreaking that I am the only person in the world who knows how to do it. But hopefully, the fact that I've collected that information in one place will make it easier in the future for somebody who wants to do similar things and they don't have to go through the, the hassle of, of reading, you know, in, you know, ancient documents about, uh, about metalworking just to, to be able to make some, some Niello. Yeah. The three is definitely the part we missed there with the actual edited <laughs> videos for Alien Astrology. Yeah. I'm pretty certain there's still some of the original tapes from the video recorder. This mm. was circa 2004, 2005 yeah. when we were producing these. So they were on like little Sony camcorders that were mm -hmm. actually putting the video onto magnetic tape. Uh, so, so it might still be possible to <laughs> retrieve some of the information <laughs> provided the, the tapes themselves haven't degraded too terribly. Well, you know, we've actually got a really great location now, John, to be able to record a lot of that information again and, and record it in 
glorious 4K footage. So, you know, we can even do a better job of it than uh, than you were able to do 20 years ago. Yeah, touche. <laughs> Looking back on some of these videos, uh, like the little tidbits that have persisted up on YouTube there, thanks to bootleggers, freeloaders, what do you call them when it's people? Freebooting. Booting. Free bo- Isn't freebooting taking something from YouTube and posting it elsewhere? Not necessarily. You can take that from anywhere. Okay. Yeah. So thanks to all these freebooted copies. Uh, some of this information does persist, and uh, just looking at it, it, it's yeah, not the the greatest quality footage. There's certainly plenty of room to improve there, and hopefully not counting eggs before they hatch here. I think if there's enough success found within the studio here, creating watches here on Canadian soil, it might actually be worthwhile down the road having something done through the National Film Board as well, which also preserves its own mm-hmm. archives and, and videos for future generations of Canadians and anyone else who may want to, to watch them. Now, your theme for 2020 was planting seeds. How do you felt that you did with uh, with that particular theme? I'd have to admit it was overwhelmingly successful. Excellent. We leveled our yard last year after waterproofing the foundation. Uh, so in the the literal sense, I planted tens of thousands of seeds <laughs> out in the yard, uh, both in terms of, of grass and some other ground cover, like clover and whatnot that the bunnies in the area really love, uh, among other ground covers. But we also planted some actual physical plants as well, uh, just to get our, our landscape looking a little nicer. Uh, but in addition to that, I was also speaking somewhat figuratively in having the year of, of planting seeds. And I'd say it, it's been successful in that vein as well. Some of the seeds are still only at the the little sprout stage. And I would have liked to have seen those come into more of a, a seedling state or, or something that requires a little less um, time and attention to, to take care of. Yeah, I'd have to say, despite all the curveballs that 2020 threw all of our ways, not not just my way, I'm pleased with how things played out in terms of looking ahead at 2021. Over the past couple of months, I've had this idea in my head, bouncing around of selective fertilization. And, and I think part of what's ruminating there, I feel like I've got too many balls in the air right now. I've got right. too many projects on the go. And I need to cut some of those off and and focus my energy better, particularly going into this year, which right now is showing a lot of signs of being similar to the year that has passed. Mm. And originally at the outset of 2020, I thought my autumn was going to look very different because I was going to have both of my kids in school right. full time. And rather than that happening, uh, they've been learning from home. So mm-hmm. I've, I've been playing the role of teacher and, and dad and also trying to get work done and mm-hmm. also trying to do side projects and, and other things. And just a lot of stuff going on. And uh, it's certainly been a challenge keeping all of that up. But in terms of the, the seeds that have been planted, uh, there are a number that I do want to focus on in 2021. And uh, I've decided it's, it's the year of 
permaculture. So I'd like to focus my energy and attention in such a way that a lot of these things will be able to continue on in and of themselves, in a sense, or that I, I lay a strong enough foundation that they require much less effort and input to upkeep. Uh, because as you know, nice as the uh, theoretical idea of permaculture is, if you leave any ecosystem wholly unto itself and, and walk away from it, entropy will eventually prevail. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, th- I think those who excel at, at permaculture and this idea of setting up plants and just living organisms in such a way that they feed off of and, and help and benefit one another and uh, that everything just sort of works together in synergy to keep on with very little input. So I'm looking at minimizing the necessary inputs to keep these little seedlings growing and and building up and hopefully seeing them turn into, you know, strong oaks one day. So some of these things in 2021 uh, are going to persist well into the future. Hopefully a lot of these things will outlive me. For instance, my own children. Uh, you know, and a lot of the the projects and uh, things that I, I put my time into, whether it's digital projects or physical projects in terms of something like a watch, like Project Minotaur, all that sort of stuff I, I hope will outlive me. And one thing I really value and appreciate from 2020 um, is this extra time that I've been able to have with my kids and to be able to to pour into their lives and, and teach them and impart knowledge and wisdom upon them is to see how much they both blossomed over the course of 2020, despite all the hiccups that COVID-19 has thrown our way this past year. And that's something that I, I want to continue to be able to invest in over the course of 2021 and, and on into perpetuity for, for the rest of my life. And in this same vein of permaculture, uh, an analogy that has stuck with me over the years from a book that Clayton Christensen wrote, and he's the author of The Innovator's Dilemma, but another book he wrote later on in in his life uh, was How Will You Measure Your Life? And in there, he, he talks about child-rearing and just relationships in general, too. Just these, these relationships you have with your family and your friends your coworkers and whatnot. Uh, but it particularly stuck out for me with, with children in that if you want the shade of a tree, <laughs> or you want to benefit from the shade of a tree, um, you needed to plant the tree 20 years ago. Um, it's it's not going to throw shade or, or bear fruit for you if you go and plant an oak seed or an acorn, rather, <laughs> I suppose is the more, the more appropriate term for for planting a seed to grow an oak tree. If you go and plant that today, it's not going to do anything for months. And then it's not going to be of value to you in those ways for years, if not decades, before it grows tall enough and strong enough to provide you with that shade and and to bear fruit. Um, So I see this stage of life as being able to invest in in my children, 
and other relationships and, and different projects now at this seedling stage, this seed stage, and being able to benefit from that investment many, many years from now. And that's, I would say, the, the lens that I'm, I'm looking through this forthcoming year is being cognizant of the fact that I may not see a whole lot of fruit uh, from my efforts, or at least not the full fruit of my efforts from 2021 in 2021, but rather, say, in 2025, 2030, 2045, be able to see that the, the time and the effort and the decisions that I'm making in 2021 will have paid off in dividends in time. Now more pertinent to and, and in line with the, the show. And the, there are a number of other projects that I'm, I'm looking forward to hopefully being able to speak about more in, in the future. Project Minotaur is very uncharacteristic of me. I, I don't tend to talk about projects until I feel they're ready to be released into the world, which is perhaps an area I need to grow in. And then working on Project Minotaur is a, is a good way to exercise that that muscle. I don't tend to talk about a lot of my projects in public either. And part of that is because, is because people often don't understand this, the time scale that it takes to, to get some projects off the ground. And and so they keep asking, he's like, oh, what are you doing with this? It's like, you understand this is a multi-year project, right? And they're like, oh, no, why didn't you just do this last week? It's like, uh. So, you know, for me, I don't I don't often talk about a lot of projects uh, publicly for quite a while. And I, I think it's been interesting having Project Minotaur as something that we're talking about as we're working on it. And in some ways, it's actually kind of nice because it gives something to people as sort of a, a taster and you you know, you're not being completely silent and secretive. So there are a lot of projects that I'm working on right now that are actively being pushed forward that you don't hear me talking about publicly, but people don't notice as much because we are talking about Project Minotaur publicly. And so that's sort of what they, they focus on. And, and in some ways, it's actually been kind of nice having having a project there that you can throw people at and say, here, this is what I'm currently working on, even though it's only a very small part of the things that I actually work on on a regular basis right now. Yeah, so some of these seeds been watering in 2020 some of those seeds i've had on hand for a number of years uh just started to sow so i'm hoping to be able to to share more of some of these projects in 2021 uh, but given what 2020 threw away I'm, I'm not going to feel that 2021 was necessarily a failure if they don't all come to pass or if none of that comes to pass uh, my my focus for the year is just to continue to to pour my energy into these projects um, selectively and intentionally um, so that they do prove to be a benefit and yield fruit down the road. So as you embark on year two of the year of building, or the year of building redux, you're already well poised, it seems, to be building up your your YouTube channel. One of the nice things about having this Project Minotaur project to work on has been having fodder for YouTube videos. And uh, you know, we've we haven't talked a lot about where we are in the process over the last uh, last few episodes. We've had a few other things to discuss, but um, the first three videos uh, are sort of 
already taken care of in a lot of ways with what we've already accomplished. Uh, the first video that I'm releasing, and, and as I said, it, it'll be up before this uh, this podcast goes live. That is talking about the sort of the introduction, what it is that we're doing, some of our goals for the project, and also shows off the actual uh, new layout that we've got for the bridges. And then the second video is going to discuss the drilling of that bridge plate and specifically drilling out the screw holes and the and the pinholes for it. And then the third video is going to be discussing actually turning the pins and installing the pins in the bridge plate. And so that that kind of gets us up to where we've worked on so far with these watches. Uh, the next step is going to be turning and and boring out the jewel holes for the piece and uh and that will you know presumably be for you know episode four of uh of the videos but we haven't quite gotten to that point yet so there may be a bit of a delay between uh videos three and four just as i you know we just because we are going to have to wait because of lockdown to uh to actually do some of this work but that's sort of where we're at with it but it is nice having this project with a a series of very definite skills and tasks that we've had to do because that's sort of forced me to uh to be able to break it up and and uh, turn it into episodes for the uh for the channel like that hopefully that gap between episodes three and four while forced on us will light a nice fire under our butts to get back at it and, and get episode four out there as soon as possible yeah yeah and uh, depending on how lockdown continues or if it continues, uh, unfortunately, Ontario has not been doing spectacular in uh, terms of COVID cases. So if there's uh, if it if it ends up being a longer lockdown than that, then uh, I may forge ahead on one of the movements because we've, we've actually got two movements that we're working on right now sort of in parallel. Uh, I may push ahead on one of them and um, and sort of get some video shot of it so that I can. I can get stuff released because I. One of the things I want to try and do with Twenty One is to try and keep a a bit of a schedule with the videos. Um, you know, just like we've done with the podcast. Every once in a while, we'll have a bit of a break as as uh, sort of life gets in the way. But we've been pretty consistent over three uh, three plus years to actually publish on a on a regular basis, and that's sort of what I try and I want to try and do with these videos. Is I. You know, I'm not going to commit to saying, oh, every Tuesday afternoon there's going to be a new video up, but I think that uh, I need to have some sort of a consistent schedule and and uh, try and keep things moving along at a at a reasonable pace. Yeah, well, I am disappointed to a degree that, that 2020 didn't enable us to make as much progress on Project Minotaur as I would have liked to have seen. I can't only blame COVID-19 for some of the setbacks. Um, we definitely uh, encountered a, a few hurdles along the way with this uh, initial few operations, and I think that's to be expected as well. Uh, when you make anything, uh, you cannot be guaranteed, and indeed you certainly should not expect to get it right uh, on the very first go-around. And despite a lot of these operations being things um, I was familiar with, and, and accustomed to doing, I was familiar with, and accustomed to doing them on machines I was familiar with. And uh, <laughs> it took me a little bit, and, and I would say uh, there's probably still a ways for me to go uh, to wholly acquaint myself with with your tooling and, and, and your lathes, and mm-hmm. uh, 
they're quite a bit bigger than my watchmaker's <laughs> lathe. Yeah, it's a small lathe, John. It's still a small. It's only a ten millimeter lathe. It's still small. Uh, I'm I'm actually considering getting some uh, uh, W20 collets for my uh, Cromwell lathe because I don't have any collets that go small enough for the pins. So I'm actually thinking about getting uh, getting some collets, some uh, half mil, one mil, and one and a half mil collets that uh, that would fit in my my Cromwell lathe so that I can actually turn the pins on that instead of my my Derbyshire because. The small Derbyshire lathe is actually driving me crazy sometimes. Um, so, yeah, it's it's funny working on some of this stuff. You know, we like I we had a couple of bridge plates that were moving along nicely, and we had actually you know done some drilling on them, and everything was great, and we'd installed pins on on them, and everything was great. And then I went to drilling the through holes for the screws and managed to snap a bunch of carbide drill bits into our nice beautiful bridge plates and managed to pretty much destroy one of those bridge plates as I was, you know, attempting to remove the uh, the broken bits of carbide from it. So, yeah, it, it's uh, it hasn't gone entirely to plan and we should be further ahead along than we are right now just because, you know, again, we've had to rebuild some of this and and frankly, it wasn't a bad thing, actually, because it did give me a chance to refilm some of the footage of actually laying out and drilling the bridge plates. And I think that's actually come out um, better than the original footage I had shot on our first one. So in some ways, I'm actually kind of happy that, that I had that opportunity. And uh, But it has meant that it slowed things down a little bit. Yeah, carbide drill bits are a little overkill for, for drilling into nickel silver. Uh, you kind of get... All the downside with with none of the benefit. Um, well, yes and no. One of the advantages of them is the fact that they're easily available and they're they're relatively inexpensive, and they're they're easily available in the sizes that we wanted. Um, so there's, there's advantages from that point of view. To be perfectly honest, even the high speed steel drill bits that I have, I managed to you know I tried a couple of those and managed to break a few of those off. Um, also, the Cameron drill presses made a huge difference from that point of view. And it's given me a little bit more control in some ways over the drilling process than drilling it on the lathe did. So I'm actually quite happy that uh, that I've started drilling on the the Cameron for the uh, the series of of plates that I have right now that are actually working out quite well. And you've also had a, a new set of pin gauges arrive, which will be helpful for making sure that the the holes are the size that uh, we want them to be, or at least that we can make sure the pins are correctly machined to the, the <laughs> size that they'll need to be to be friction fit into the holes uh, which again <laughs> using the methods i was familiar with i, I was able to make pin that fit no problem <laughs> using the the larger lathe and, and the different setup uh turned out every single pin i machined using that uh just didn't play out but then <laughs> you being more familiar with all the the, the various tools at your disposal, came up with a, quite an ingenious solution for putting a very subtle taper on the, the tail end of the pins for installing them in the plates. And this was also all much easier to, to work out once we actually had the, the the size of the holes figured out more precisely as well. Yeah, unfortunately, my, my last pin gauge set was a, a used set that I'd picked up at a very reasonable price from one of my local dealers, and I couldn't really pass up because it was a sort of a wide range of pin gauges at a um, at a, a very, very, very reasonable price, and I, I couldn't turn it down. But it was also missing a bunch of 
sizes. And uh, of course, it was missing a bunch of them in the exact range that we needed. Uh, so we were we were sort of guesstimating on on some of the pin sizes that we had. Uh, since then, I've I've had a proper metric set show up with the um, the exact sizes that we needed in hundredth of a millimeter increments. So that should make things a little bit easier for figuring out the exact size that we need for uh, for these pins. Um, and then you know just being used to and comfortable with the machines that that's a huge part of it. Uh, if you're not used to working with dials and and slide rests and stuff like that on on a lathe, it it does take a little bit of getting used to. Or imperial. <clears throat> Yeah, unfortunately, the uh, the Derbyshire lathe is all set up in Imperial, which is frustrating when you're working with uh, with metric measurements and you you have Imperial dials on your on your machine. So one of the things we'll eventually do is is actually set up a uh, a new dial on one of my cross slides so that it's uh, it's in metric instead of in Imperial because that that would make our lives a lot easier. Uh, but even then, it's you know there's it's just a number. There's no reason why you can't turn it to. Uh, you know, to an imperial number versus a metric mm-hmm. number, and uh, but a, a large part of that comes down to just familiarity with machines and and uh, getting used to working with them and and understanding feed rates and things like that as you're working. So there's a bunch of stuff that um, you know once you once you get used to it and you and you do it a lot, it's it's not that big a deal. The comment earlier about working on the Cromwell, uh, the the reason why it would be nice to do that is just because a much bigger lathe, it's far more stable and it's. Uh, in many ways, it's easier to hit numbers, particular numbers of uh, dimensions, uh, just because they're larger dials with um, finer increments on the um, on the dials, and uh, and that just makes things a lot easier when it comes to uh, to actually turning. Um, in the case of the Derbyshire, I've actually been using a dial indicator to judge the distances that I'm moving instead of using the um, the dials, uh, just because it it is. You know the dials on the uh, the Derbyshire are uh, are pretty pretty tiny, um, so there's some advantages to to bigger machines in terms of what uh, what you can do there. And then for the taper, yeah, you know the the taper. There's a bunch of different ways that you can put a fine taper on the back of a pin like that. I just took a carbide bit and uh, ground a two and a half degree taper on the uh, the face of it, and just used it as a form tool on the particular pin that we were working and so that puts a five degree included angle on the end of the tape on the end of the pin just a nice little taper there just makes it easier to sit it in the hole it's not going to affect the performance of the pin in the long term uh, but it just makes it a bit easier when you're actually inserting the pin you're not trying to insert a a slightly oversized pin into the hole Uh, you're actually putting a slightly undersized part of the pin in uh, and then it's relatively easy to, once you've once you've got that taper sitting there and it's sitting in place to use the staking set to uh, to then actually seat the the pin properly and get it into place. But having that nice little taper on the end of it is is convenient. And again, it's easy with you know when you have the right tools and you and you think about things in the right way, it's it's relatively easy to make a custom form tool to do exactly that. Especially when the custom form tool is just a simple taper that's on it. Mm-hmm. And the the right mindsets. And, and knowing what tools are at your disposal yeah. uh, helps too. I, yeah. I I was frustrated. It took me 20 minutes to whip up that <laughs> pin on my little watchmaker's lathe and it went in like yeah. butter. Yeah. And I, I didn't want to make more until I had tested and verified that it was just going to work well in the mm-hmm. hole and then went on to spend two hours <laughs> futilely trying to make another pin uh, that, w- that would actually fit in there. Yeah, uh, using using the setup there, 
of the studio. Uh, but now that I'm more familiar with it, yeah, it does go much smoother, much faster. The little taper is just the, the slight, slightest turn of my hand when working on my watchmaker's lathe. And, or, you know, very slightly turning the the cross slide uh, would do the same thing. But I, that cross slide, I'm not confident in my, my ability to, to give it a very slight uh, <laughs> turn in the way that it's set up. Uh, yeah. I do appreciate uh, the little jig you made for squaring it on the lathe, actually. Uh, it's kind of a, a neat touch and a, a nice improvement from our, our first foray working mm-hmm. on the lathe. All of these little things, again, once the more of this kind of work that you do, the the more you get used to approaching it from a different mindset. One of the skills that I am happiest to have learned thanks to learning work as a bench jeweler and skills as a bench jeweler and now as a watchmaker is this skill of of making your own tools to make the things that you're making. The reality is that for thousands of years, jewelers have may, had to make the vast majority of their tools. And while, you know, we're living in sort of a golden age of tools in the jewelry industry and and what's available to us to be able to purchase, at the end of the day, so many of those tools, even the ones that we purchase, are things that we have to modify anyways. And that mindset of of looking at a tool and going, okay, I've just ordered a tool and it's not an actual tool. What it is is it's a, it's it's just a base for you to then finish modifying it to become the tool that you actually need and that having that mindset of thinking about building tools to build things is kind of a it's an important thing to to sort of get to and again having a machine shop and understanding what's available and how you can make things and how you can make jigs and how the tools work all of those things I'm so happy that I've had that that sort of training in my you know, in my journey to be able to get to that point, because I've had to make so many of the tools and jigs and everything that I need. And I've had to force myself to figure out how to do all those things. And I've, you know, I've had a lot of advantages of of speaking to people, people like Paul uh, Burberry, who was on the show recently, uh, guys like David Lindo, uh, you know, just sitting in his shop and watching what he does, and how he's made things over the years. Because again, he's a he came to this world of making as a clockmaker and he had to make a lot of tools and a lot of jigs and everything in order to make the things that he wanted to make and so sitting in his shop and watching him make these things it's it's incredibly informative and that uh you know that that skill set is is definitely benefiting us here mm-hmm. and that's the reality no matter what level of production you're working at whether you're an artisan working in your own workshop, having these tools and aids and jigs to help you along pay huge benefits and are necessary in a lot of ways. While it may have felt like the year of survival for you, both you and Rich certainly built out a a ton of aids and and infrastructure and, and tooling there within the studio for you to enable the art that you're each making. And I would say that your year of building part one was successful. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what's in store for the year of building part two. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, 
Follow us on Twitter, at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. <laughs>